0: Hello and welcome to the That's My Truth podcast. I'm your host, Juliana, and I'm so glad you're tuning in today. If you are a first time listener, I'd like to welcome you to the show. And if you are a returning listener, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode. This podcast features discussions with people who I admire and look up to about everything from career and wellness to social issues and friendship if you are looking for ways to support the show, there are a few ways. First, you can leave a review or rating in Apple podcasts. Second, you can share an episode with a friend or share it on social media. And lastly, you can follow us on social media and anywhere we are present online. So check us out. But overall, more than anything, you listening is the most supportive thing you can do. So thank you for tuning in. Hello and happy Thursday. Thank you so much for tuning in to an episode of the That's My Truth podcast. I'm your host, Juliana. This episode is an absolute gem today. I sat down with my friend Francesca. We both went to Yukon and that is where we met. And then we also were living in the DMV at the same time for a bit. It was really nice to sit down and chat with Francesca and ask her questions in a structured way, and also just get to know her in ways that I haven't necessarily through our friendship. So she is an absolute gem. I know you will love this episode. All of the things that we discuss, like her recommendations and also where to find her, will be included in the show notes. So be sure to check there. But I will turn it over to the interview. So enjoy. Hello, Francesca. Lovely to see you. Hi and have you on the podcast so to start us off why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself
1: okay so francesca Pune, um i thought a lot about how i was going to introduce myself um <laughs> and i think because <laughs> i'm still a student i fall into the like so i'm just going to do that because that's what i normally oh, do totally yeah um i'm from silver spring maryland you know like a proud dmv native Um, I went to college with you, obviously, and so I went up to Connecticut, um, came back to D.C. for a little bit for work, and now I am living in Chicago and am a student again at the University of Illinois at Chicago.
0: So you mentioned that you are a student, and I know just from knowing you that you're pursuing your Ph.D. in clinical psych, so I'm curious what made you want to pursue that degree?
1: I wish that it was like a ever since I was five years old I knew I want you know what I mean but it's more along the lines of like kind of starting in my teens I was just really curious about why people did what they did why people like feel certain ways or like why people feel different ways even like people who are genetically similar just kind of like wondering about human behavior and mood um, and then I got to high school and I took an AP psych class and we were introduced to like neuroscience and I was like "Ooh, that's kind of cool like hmm. um like you know your brain is like largely responsible for like everything you do and it's kind of cool so when I started college I was like I'm going to get my PhD in neuroscience which isn't what I do now um because I had a series of like internships and like research experiences involving like neuroscience research without any like human interaction pieces to it, um, which is like what's fun about psych for me. And I realized like that was not what I wanted to do at all. And like, I need to like be with people and talk to people. So kind of led me to clinical psych. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: (laughs) It's funny. I was going to ask you, kind of about neuroscience versus psychology and what you liked about each, but you really did touch on that. So what are your goals after completing your PhD program?
1: So I one thing that I really like about clinical psych in particular is that there's so much flexibility because, you know, it's like a six-year program, you're kind of locked into this degree, and I don't know, I felt like, I don't know, commitment issues. Like what if I, you know, so like I wanted – pursue a degree at least that gave me some uh flexibility after i finished so um you know the more traditional path is like going into academia being a professor and like doing research full-time um but i think at least my cohort mates and like a lot of uh like younger generation like students now are thinking like maybe clinical work is something that they want to really pursue after graduating And I think that, I mean, but also like public policy is a thing, consulting, like, um, so there are a lot of options, but I think I would be most happy if I could do research and see clients. I don't know in what capacity, but I think that if I have to do either one full-time, I'd get really burned out and I'd be kind of unhappy. So um, yeah, I don't exactly know what that looks like for me, but I want both of those aspects a part of my career later.
0: Definitely a balance. Yeah, that sounds cool. So I'm just curious why did you choose your clinical, your PhD in clinical psych as opposed to like a master's or um, a psych D or unless you're going for a psych D? No. So yeah, it's
1: a, um, there's this side there. Okay.
0: Uh, I feel like this is a long <laughs> This
1: is a conversation I have with students too that I like TA for and like have in my lab, just like explaining your options because like a PhD is not the only way to accomplish your goals. Um, And I think that sometimes you kind of fall into the like, oh, I'm just gonna get a PhD when you don't, it's, I feel like very specific. Um, You pursue a PhD if you want to do research. It's like the biggest distinction. A PsyD um, is like clinical only, Um, but like you're still a doctor. And so, you know, you can still get like a doctoral degree without having to do research if you hate it. (laughs) Um, And then a master's, the difference between like a clinical psych master's or even a a sci-fi and a master's, I think, again, comes with the the flexibility piece um, and like the jobs that you might be eligible for with a master's versus a PhD. Like you can't be a professor with a master's. Um, You like you can get licensed um, to do certain kinds of clinical work. Um, but I think you're kind of limited in the like context that you can like work in. Um, And so that was kind of why I decided to kind of just do the six years, have like the flexibility to do whatever I wanted. I feel like I'm gonna say flexibility a lot. Um, (laughs) During this interview, I just really hated the idea of being like locked into something because it's so scary. Um, Oh, but also you have to pay for all the other degrees You don't have to pay for um, a PhD in most schools.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a big factor. Yeah. Um, So I guess on that same topic of master's, I know that you recently completed your master's. So exciting. Congrats. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious about your thesis and what the next steps are for your PhD.
1: Yeah. So master's was my first milestone in grad school, which is very exciting. Um, It kind of deviated from what my like, I guess technically what my research interests are. Um, So to give you some context, what I actually study in grad school is social function in psychosis and psychosis related uh, disorders um, and like the deviations in neurodevelopment related to social function. But my masters, was not about that at all. Um, And I think it really was, so in one of my classes, we had a faculty member who's outside of our division come talk to us about some of her work. And she works with young kids in the Chicago public school system um, and largely examines like academic success and like um, teacher engagement and like teaching students um, kind of like motion regulation techniques and things like that. and specifically looks at uh, kids of color and kids from um, low socioeconomic status backgrounds. So like, because her uh, lab focuses on like academic stuff primarily, none of her grad students have looked at like uh, psychopathology and she had this like anxiety data set, and It's like, okay, like I'm kind of curious. And like, what I like about my definition of social uh, like research is that it encompasses like S.E.S. I don't know if everyone thinks that way or would think they kind of align, but I've kind of broadened it to encompass my master's project. So I was looking at okay, so about 16% of children in the United States live in poverty, which is like crazy. That's so many kids, Um, and we know that poverty and low S.E.S. is related to like adverse um, developmental outcomes. Like it impacts your emotional development. It's um, and your like. Uh, your brain development, and it's also related to um, mental illness later in life, like whether you're a teen or in adulthood. Um, and so I wanted to look in this data set of um, primarily Black and Latinx youth that was followed from their entrance into Head Start programs in the city, till, and they were followed until um, they graduated from high school. So it's just like pretty incredible data set of like 400 kids that have been followed for Like 12 years. Um, And so I was looking at um, childhood poverty and how that related to trait anxiety in adolescence. And I wanted to, because we know that's like an established relationship, but I was kind of curious about like what might be explaining that relationship. And there are like a lot of theories bouncing around, but um, no one had really looked at um, this idea of distress tolerance. so, like, your ability to kind of withstand and, like, maybe persist in goal-directed behavior despite, like, negative experiential states. So, like, despite uh, experiencing stress, you're, like, able to complete a task or, like, like yeah. So, I guess I'll stop there. But um, <laughs> so I wanted to see if distress tolerance maybe explain that relationship. Um And one thing that I think, sorry, I'm going on this really long tangent, but it was like a kind of big project. (laughs) Um, But one thing, a shortcoming of the current like SES literature is that there are so many ways that you can measure socioeconomic status. um, And how you measure it has a lot of implications for how you interpret your findings. And so I kind of wanted to look at a number of different measures of SES um, to see like what implications that had on anxiety specifically. Um, And so I had initially kind of proposed it as like individual level features of poverty. So like household poverty and things along those lines versus like structural level. So like neighborhood level poverty indicators. But interestingly, that's not really how my results shook out. Um, And so it looked like um, the, it was objective versus subjective indicators of poverty that had different implications for anxiety, excuse me, and distress tolerance. So the subjective measures of poverty were related to, were more related to uh, anxiety than the objective measures. So um, someone's experience of violence during childhood or their perception of wealth. And like their financial hardship during childhood impacted their anxiety in adolescence more than household poverty or and or more than like neighborhood poverty which is like kind of interesting and then the objective measures so like census data is like what i'm talking about it's not like me asking someone about their experience it's like i'm taking data from the government um that (laughs) um those features of poverty so like neighborhood and household level were related to distress tolerance more than the subjective measures. And so all that is like kind of nebulous, but like what I'm kind of, what we concluded was that, you know, if we want to increase distress tolerance, so we know that distress tolerance is important for other things like depression or substance use. So if we're finding that children that experience like chronic poverty throughout childhood have decreased distress tolerance, then like maybe we should be targeting these structures that are in place um, that are kind of leading to this deficit. And then obviously like with subjective stuff, like if we want to target anxiety, like if that's our goal, then we should really be looking at um, how people are experiencing and like thinking about their circumstances.
0: Um, So yeah, that was kind of long, but that was my master's. That's really cool. That sounds really interesting too. So the idea is that your distress tolerance or the study show that children who live in poverty have lower distress tolerance. Yeah. So
1: that's what I found in my study. um, And some others that weren't directly measuring like anxiety as their main target found similar things as well, like with depression or substance use. They found that like, Poverty was related to lower distress tolerance. But that's not to say that, like, there aren't some, like, resilience aspects to it. It's just not what I was measuring. And I think that there is a story there. And, like, (sighs) so often literature is, like, focused on, like, what people in poverty are, like, missing or how they're, like, bad or, you know what I mean? And it is horrible. It's a horrible condition. But in addition to, like, fixing the problem, we should also, like, acknowledge that, they have gone through something extraordinary and are coming out of the other side you know like so
0: yeah anyway it wasn't an exactly your question <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's really interesting and it's also neat to hear you explain it all because it's something you've been like in the weeds on for so long so it's very I feel cool like it feels <laughs> like it <laughs> Okay, so I know that you received an early career award from the Schizophrenia International Research Society, which is very cool, so congrats. Thank you, Thanks. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can talk about that research that you completed. Sure, so the
1: award sounds cooler than it actually is, I will say. <laughs> so, um, not to like qualify my accomplishments, but um, it's an annual conference, Uh, that I applied for the award through. So it's the society puts on this annual conference. And um, because I have this award, now I like have um, like specific networking opportunities and I get to go to these special sessions and yada, yada, yada. So that's really cool. Um, But to apply, I submitted a project for them to review um, as kind of like my submission for the award. And so, I like I said, I'm interested in social function and psychosis. Um, but I'm also interested in like comorbid psychopathology and how that relates to kind of core symptoms of psychosis. So, this project was looking at the prevalence and the functional consequences of having social anxiety in addition to being at clinical high risk for psychosis. Um, and so, yeah, it's generally like comorbid psychopathology is like the rule, not the exception in terms of psychosis. Like more often than not, a person that has psychosis or is at an elevated risk for psychosis is going to have more, more often uh, anxiety and depression. Um, not to say that those are the only two that someone can have and they can obviously have more than one, but it's often that psychosis co-occurs with something else. Um, and so there is some literature about how common social anxiety is, but more often than not, they use comparison samples that are like overly clean and like really, overly healthy people. So they'll exclude people from the study if they have any other psychopathology or mental illness, which isn't reflective of the population. Like most people aren't supremely healthy, you know what I mean? So... I used a comparison sample of people from the general population and I didn't exclude them for having comorbid psychopathology, um, which my research group and I think, you know, increases the like validity of like this research. Um, And so basically, and I'm just gonna refer to them as CHR because it's a mouthful to say, clinical high risk for psychosis. (laughs) Um, So the CHR group um, was basically at, about a three times greater risk of having a comorbid uh, social anxiety disorder diagnosis compared to their peers in the general population, Um, which is like kind of incredible because it means that, you know, young adults at at CHR for psychosis are maybe particularly vulnerable for social anxiety disorder. Um, And we also found that non-social anxiety anxiety disorders, if that makes sense. So like (laughs) panic disorder, agoraphobia, generalized anxiety disorder, there was no difference in the risk across groups. So like CHR and their peers were at equal risk of having another anxiety disorder, but social anxiety disorder like really stood out. And um, in some follow-up analyses, we realized that, or we learned that social anxiety is related to negative symptoms of uh, psychosis and not positive symptoms. Which is like kind of interesting um, that I'd be happy to go into more detail about, but it's, yeah. I don't know what level of depth you want me to go into. Um, And it, social anxiety has negative impacts on how people function socially with their their community or at work. Um, And so, yeah, that was the project that they decided to award me the thing for.
0: That's awesome. I like hearing you talk about it because... You're just very excited about it. Like I can tell it's, it's your little baby. It is. Uh, it is. We're <laughs> for over a year now. So, <laughs> yeah. So next question is kind of linking psychology research to the greater world. So can you talk about how psychology research impacts medicine and society and like the gr- social norms and all of that? Yeah.
1: And I feel like different domains of psychology are really important for a lot of those. So like community psychology and prevention research has like strong implications for like public policy and like um, developmental psychology has like a lot of implications for a broad range of things, but like not only like biological basis of behavior and how that, you know, changes across the lifespan, but like school-based interventions, like thinking about what's best for children. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the most, maybe, um, I used to make this joke when I was at NIH that like one day the public was just going to like ask us what we were spending their money on. You know what I mean? Like they were just going to, because the communication, science communication is something that really needs to be worked on. I think that especially, it's especially easy for like, uh, not to call out, but like neuroscience (laughs) researchers to like sit in their ivory tower and like just do their cute little studies and like not really explain why in like layman's terms and like express why this is important for everyone and not just other researchers, if that makes sense. So I think that like understanding human biology is like very important and has like implications for like precision medicine and like I mean how do we understand normal development and that has implications for what we think about like what's abnormal um and so yeah I think that a lot of psychologists or at least research psychologists have some work to do in kind of communicating why what we do is actually important to other people. Because it's easy when you're in clinical psych, like I'm a therapist. So it's like, you can see the direct implication of that. But yeah, other (laughs) areas have some work to do.
0: Are you practicing therapy or administering?
1: I know, I still (laughs) struggle with it too. (laughs)
0: I like don't. (laughs) always know
1: what to call it yeah I just started um being a therapist in January <laughs> see I don't oh. even know um and so what's cool is that like I do therapy but I also um do like psychodiagnostic assessments um and, like cognitive assessments so that is something that I've been doing since last September but therapy I think is my love so
0: it's oh, been really? fun to start. Yeah. Yeah, What's that experience like? I'm curious.
1: It is like, I think (laughs) I expected. Okay. So I'm getting a PhD. I, you know, am relatively high achieving. I'm used to like picking things up relatively quickly, but therapy was a hurdle. (laughs) I was not expecting it to be so, um, complex. I mean, that sounds so horrible, but it was a lot to learn, I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so learning it and not being good at learning it right away made me nervous because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get into the therapy room. <laughs> I'm going to ruin someone's life. <laughs> um, but that didn't happen. And it rarely happens for any future therapists out there. It's unlikely that what you do in the therapy room <laughs> will like, make someone worse. <laughs> Um, But now that I'm doing it, it's been so fun. And I feel like it's been especially impactful for me as a black woman. And like this field is research wise dominated by white men, but clinically, I would say that it's dominated by white women. And so it's been really cool to kind of see clients reactions to me being black. So and like the solidarity that we feel in the room and like almost like this simultaneous, like we're rooting for each other. Like it's just this whole different energy. Um, and so that's been really fun. And to just like watch clients get things and like, yeah, it's been really special.
0: I like your kind of journey with it from like, oh, I'm not good at it. And then like, <laughs> you're like, oh, well I worked at it, but that sounds really special. So you're doing that for like, the next year
1: yeah so I'm doing that for um the rest of my career I right now I'm doing it at the clinic in our school um and then I will transition to a different clinic in Chicago in my third year and then I, my last year of the program is an internship where I it's a clinical internship so I'm doing something clinical whether it be assessment or therapy anywhere in the country that I match it's like the residency match for multiple. Oh, school. yeah.
0: I forget that it's that residency match. That's awesome, though. Very oh. exciting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what are some changes you'd like to see in the psychology slash academic research space?
1: Yeah, I feel like kind of similar to what I was talking about in the clinical sense. Like I would love to just see more people <laughs> of color. <laughs> and it like really is not, it's kind of that simple. Like I am the only person, I'm the only black person in my entire division. So there are no black faculty, there are no other black students. And so I had to confront a level of loneliness (laughs) that I have not in my entire life. Um, And it's not because my department is like exclusionary. I just, you know, sometimes a lot of times get tired of like going into a meeting like being the only one and like so yeah I think that I would like more representation because it's like important for student for students going through these programs also for clients seeing themselves reflected in their healthcare professionals and like research wise I think that yeah I think that's a whole other (laughs) shortcoming but I yeah Yeah, more of us, I think, is really important. It just has such profound impacts on, like, perseverance in the program, and, like, it determines, like, what you want to do in the future. Like, I've talked to current faculty members at other universities that are, like, my experience in grad school almost made me just want to, like, stay out of academia forever. Like, this is an uncomfortable, almost hostile environment for me to be in, like, and just kind of, like, thinking about like, do I want to put myself through this for the rest of my life in research? Or do I want to lean into like community-based care and just like be in my my community of people and helping them? Like it, yeah. So I have no way to wrap that up,
0: <laughs> but it's, it's tough sometimes. That's interesting what you were saying about loneliness, um, because I think that is such a um, like powerful word, loneliness, right? Like everyone's like, oh, I can relate to that feeling. Mm-hmm. And although I can't relate to that, like it just, but also thank you for sharing that because I know that's more personal, especially since school is like such a big part of your life. Um, okay. So I did want to transition. <laughs> My transitions are so awkward. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, okay. So this might be kind of redundant. Well, maybe not. So how has studying psychology shaped your outlook on the world? (laughs) I feel like (laughs) it's,
1: um, I think before I started doing therapy, my answer would be a little different, but now that I am, it's like, I laugh at how at, at the almost disconnect between, things that I try and get my clients to understand versus what I do myself. Like, you know, like being behaviorally activated, like engaging in activities that are of value to you is important and has profound impacts on your mood. However, I did not go outside today. Like I just (laughs) did work indoors (laughs) under these fluorescent lights all day. And so it's just like, come on, Francesca, like just, you know, like, you, you can explain this to other people, but you have, to, you have to do it yourself. So that's, yeah, the awareness piece.
0: Is it cold there? Is that why?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually a beautiful day for Chicago.
0: <laughs> but I'm here. So you mentioned you live in Chicago, and I know you're in a long-distance relationship. So... I'm wondering if you can talk about how you remain connected long distance and how you manage feelings of loneliness or sadness being so far away. Yeah, that
1: was like a really difficult transition because we obviously weren't always long distance. And it was like a couple major life transitions at once. So it was, we, so he's in, uh, a clinical psych PhD program as well, but in a different state. Um, And we knew that we started our relationship as we were applying, basically. So we kind of knew that this was a possibility, but the the transition to school and the transition to long distance relationship, like at the same time was horrible. (laughs) It was just, I don't even want to sugarcoat it. It was so hard. Um, and because we were both, I mean, we had only been dating for a little less than a year when we made that transition. Um, and so we were still like learning a lot about each other. And you know, you have just I think different needs when you're long distance compared to when you're like <sighs> short distance. I don't know what the opposite of that is. <laughs> so I think yeah, it was a lot of learning and growth and um string from the question. I already
0: forgot it. What was it? <laughs> I know that you lost your dad when you were younger. And I'm sorry that happened. And I'm wondering how do you personally manage grief and how that's like evolved over time? Yeah. Uh, um so yeah, I was in my
1: early teens. So it was over 10 years ago. Um, and I think the yeah my grief really has changed as I've accomplished milestones in my life, like even outside of school to like learning how to drive or like you know like things like that that you normally have like both of your parents present for or like things that are stereotypically like your dad does um and so I think I've felt it a lot more in adolescence and like my i mean I guess I'm guessing technically mid twenties now. Um, in my early 20s, I also kind of felt that way. But I think now it's hard, and this might sound awful to say, but it because it's been so long, it's, like, hard to remember what my life was like before. Um, and so in a way, that almost makes it easier, which is, like, unfortunate. Um, but I still try to just, like, when I'm feeling that loss, especially, like... I feel like it's always kind of there like this low level like underlying almost everything I do but when it like really crops up similar to what I said before I just like lean into it I like go and look at pictures I'll like call my mom so we can just like chat um and I'm like extremely lucky to have um a parent that is like so open to talking about that loss um I mean because you can imagine like some parents, it just, like, might be too painful for them to, like, even talk about, um, and so, yeah, I just kind of, like, lean into supports and, like, thinking about those times that I kind of struggle to remember,
0: so, yeah. Thanks for sharing. So, who do you look up to? Oh, my mom. Is it her birthday? It is her
1: <laughs> birthday. <laughs> oh, my god. Happy birthday. Oh,
0: my I, I saw hate your Instagram. You on her behalf. <laughs> you saw my Instagram. No, I know I have your mom's number. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell her about that. Um she yeah, she's the big six zero today. Um and has she's like I was describing to someone earlier today, like the definition of chaotic good. You know how there's like <laughs> spectrum? Yes. She's chaotic good like she you know what she did today she um a few months ago she got a motorcycle license (laughs) and so today she went to go buy a motorcycle so chaotic good like that that is incredible to know her is to love her she's so vibrant has like the most incredible laugh I have ever heard (laughs) uh she's so kind she like Is so yeah, has just gone through so much and is still just like, What can I do to help others? and like inspirational. And this, like, she had a midlife career change, like, I don't know, she was like 48, she quit her job that she'd been working at for like 20 something years and was like, I need to work with the public school system, like, the Montgomery County public school system is where she works now and works in this program that they have called like study circles, which <clears throat> I think is a misnomer because they like really, they work with students and teachers and like other professionals in the county to talk to them about racial equity. Um, and like the school to prison pipeline and like all these things that are impacting kids of color that they might not have been aware of before. Um, it's just like a lot of teacher trainings, etc. Um, she's a phenomenal lady and it like, Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. She taught me to speak up and, you know, like be proud of my identity. And was, it was super annoying when I was younger. Like, do not get me wrong. I was just like so embarrassed. Like every time we'd go to a restaurant, they didn't bring out her order the exact way. She'd like make them redo it or like, you know, ask for ask for what she deserved. And like, I would be embarrassed about it, but it was like a really great model, <laughs> that woman. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's so sweet. Um, oh, yeah. Did she end up getting one, a motorcycle? Like, can you bring those home the next day? Um, I actually don't know. I don't know if she got, like, a custom <laughs> color or something.
1: Flames on the side. <laughs> oh, my God, stop. I hope she gets a little, like, flame helmet. <laughs> oh,
0: my <laughs> That's so cool. It's funny. My mom used to want to drive a motorcycle, ride a motorcycle, and then she, like, had a change of heart because she heard – they were hard you know, to ride or whatever.
1: Or dangerous and like people die.
0: <laughs> I didn't want to say that, but like <laughs> you did. No, so, been yeah. thinking about it. <laughs> but like it's a nice back road journey, I'm sure. Like to take them on the back roads. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't
1: live in <laughs> a place with a lot of back roads. I just truly don't know where she thinks she's riding it like to the grocery store, like what to the gym, like where are you going? <laughs>
0: that's amazing I love that how have you gone about creating a sense of community in a new city and work environment Um, so I know I saw I think it was in July you were featured in um, the black and noro black and noros week I don't know why I say noro weird black and neuro yeah yeah there you go (laughs) so that was just like one thing that kind of made me think about other networks or communities that you might be a part of Yeah, that was a pretty cool one because it's, so
1: it came about in this time that, you know, last summer when it was just like, whew, whew. So it was like a really beautiful thing to see like the Black community like internationally come together and be like, look at all of our success and like how awesome we are and like how we can connect to each other. Um, And so that was really special for me to see. Um, And they have had like other events, like other conferences and like special interest groups and things like that. So I highly encourage anyone who isn't a part of it and identifies as black and is in a relatively neuroscience field to join. (laughs) It's really not strict, Um, uh, quote unquote. Um, But yeah, so my school has a diversity advancement committee. Um, and, like, a student advisory board, which there are, like, actual, like, student advisors. And then there's just, like, people that can come to the meetings. I am a person that goes to the meetings. But something that I recently, only recently started doing, because I kind of felt like, okay, so I'm the only Black person in the division. Like, I can't be that, also perform and, like, be a student and, like, take on this extra kind of like it to me at the time it felt like a burden. But now I wish I had done it sooner because it really is so chill. And it's just like all of the people of color that are in the whole department, not just the clinical division and uh allies. And we like have this fun mixed media discussion group. So it's like this past week we watched One Night in Miami and then on Monday we talked about it. And it was just like it's really casual kind of community um in this sometimes isolating academic setting um so that's been really fun to be a part of um yeah i i feel like yeah i'm still working on finding communities across the city that aren't academic um hopefully rock climbing can be it um but yeah yeah
0: that's very cool um i'd imagine these are all virtual right i don't know why i'm even asking okay um, what is One Night in Miami?
1: Oh, it's so good. Okay, so it's on ugh, Amazon Prime. But it's... <laughs> no, Jeff Bezos. I know. We don't hold it against Regina King. It's directed by Regina King. Um, it's her directorial debut. And um, it was truly phenomenal. It was basically... I didn't know this, but um, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali... Jim Brown, who's a famous football player, and Sam Cooke, the singer, were all friends, Like, which is so interesting because they are from different you know, areas. But they were all friends. And it's telling the story of this one night that they all go to Miami to see Muhammad Ali in a fight. And this is before he joins the Nation of Islam. So he's actually Cassius Clay at this point. Um, It hasn't been renamed. And so they all go to Miami to see him fight. And the whole thing basically takes place in this hotel room, Malcolm X's hotel room. And they're all just like talking about like their basically like their journeys to kind of like Black liberation. Like, how are they all going about it? And like, how, like, because Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, who I didn't know, took very different approaches to it. And so I'm not going to ruin the rest of the movie, but it's like really talking about like Black identity, Black liberation. It was
0: very good. Wow. That sounds amazing. Especially like Regina King. I didn't know that was her director, d- directorial debut. I know. Um, go her <laughs> go. And then I also, I mean, this isn't the point, but like, it's always so interesting when movies take place in like one room. <coughs> oh yeah. So like Okay, I'm curious. I do actually use my sister's Amazon Prime. So I'll have to like yeah. No Uh, I wasn't even bothered
1: at all that it was all in one room. I like hardly noticed. It was very well done.
0: Cool. You have moved around, like you mentioned, you were you grew up in Maryland, DMV, you lived in Connecticut and then you went back and then you went to Chicago. So I'm wondering where do you feel most at home? part of me
1: well, I found horrible I feel like I said that a couple of times so far it's like part of me I feel most comfortable where my stuff is that's like a horrible answer but it, like I noticed when I'm like at home in Maryland like I like miss my books and like I miss my desk and like you know just like my routines and so it's been really weird to kind of transition out of my Maryland house being home, um, Chicago doesn't quite feel like home yet just because of the pandemic. Like I actually spent four months in Pittsburgh with my partner. So I was living there for a while. Um, or what felt like a while. And, but now when I go back to Pittsburgh, I kind of like feel myself relax a little bit and just like, I don't know, it just has this, like, it feels like I'm returning home, even though like, I don't, spend that much time there, but it probably is largely a part of
0: my partner. So yeah. It's interesting what you said about like where your stuff is because I am like a very anxious traveler and I've found like one thing I love because I get nervous like where my things are and like it's just nice being in a routine. And like it's so interesting during the pandemic. Obviously I haven't been traveling. And it's been, like, so nice not to travel yeah. because I don't have that, like, travel anxiety and fear that I forgot something or, like, you know, yes. just general anxiety. It's it's very interesting. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to travel much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How Everyone's
0: that like, let's back. travel.
1: <laughs> Are you going to travel ever again? Oh, yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> but it's just been, like, nice to be home and be, yeah, not really, like – I mean, it's more like day trips, and things like that, mm. or small weekend getaways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways, not everyone that feels the sense same sense. way. <laughs> no, I feel it. I'm, like, always thinking about something I forgot, or maybe forgot. Always. Yeah. Always. hmm So I heard this on another podcast, so I started adding it into mine, because I think it's a cool question. What do you recommend people read, watch, and listen to? So, okay, read...
1: I, a couple months ago, finished Homegoing by Yaa Gyasi, and that was amazing. Like, cannot, oh my gosh, amazing. So I recommend it to literally everyone. Um, I think that everyone should watch One Night in Miami, or even though it's not technically out yet, but I think it's gonna be really good. There's this Billie Holiday documentary that's coming out on Hulu. It's called the United States versus Billie Holiday. Um, the trailer looks really good. So I'm just gonna preemptively recommend it to everyone.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, do you know someone who produced it? No, it <laughs> <No. laughs> just looks good. No, just looks good.
1: Or something that's gonna seem so off-brand and like so unrelated to anything that we have talked about here today there is this um tv show on hulu also it's called dave um it's about the rapper it's loosely about the rapper little dicky um like very loosely but like i literally thought so it was introduced to me by my partner and i literally thought it was gonna be so dumb because i had never heard a little dicky song ever in my life and now he has this tv show but it was so funny because he's actually really neurotic and like really quirky and weird and just like this like white jewish guy trying to be a rapper and like so it was pretty funny so you can watch that too
0: <laughs> okay Uh so, wait did you do a listen oh no <laughs> oh okay
1: um i've been really vibing with anything from the 60s through the 80s I don't know I'm just feeling really connected to it right now um so I'm gonna say anything oh okay daydreaming by Aretha Franklin
0: oh so how can listeners like find and support you or reach out to you etc um twitter is something that I'm actively on nowadays
1: um it's f and then my last name, K-U-H-N-E-Y. Um, or like, I don't know, through you, maybe. I don't know if that's appropriate. <laughs> that's I appropriate. Don't like throw my email out, but if they are interested, or like I love helping students apply to grad school because I think it's so annoyingly secretive about the process. So like definitely let me know if you're if anyone's applying.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining. This has been so fun and it's been lovely hearing you like geek out on your, (laughs) on your research. (laughs) That was so fun catching up. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the That's My Truth podcast. Make sure to follow Francesca on Twitter. And if you are a PhD And if you are interested in getting your PhD in psychology, feel free to reach out to me and I can connect you to Francesca in the best way. So um, if you are looking for ways to support the show, please share an episode with a friend, follow us on social media. So our Instagram handle is That's My Truth Podcast or leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. So. Also, feel free to reach out. Always love hearing from listeners. Um, And if you have any ideas for future guests, would love to hear that as well. But that wraps up our episode today. So thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week.